0: To help Cam H treat addiction and build hope. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash Canada Land. Jaron Kerr. Jesse, what's up? Deputy Editor here at Canada Land. Good to have you on Shortcuts. Good to be here. Jaron, today we are going to talk about Justin Trudeau in blackface three times. How the fuck did we miss that? God knows. I don't know. And Canada's reporters bravely declare their independence from their own union. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I guess they feel like they need to. Good to have you here. Yeah, Good to be here. This episode of Shortcuts is brought to you by Lara Casciola, Neil Excel, Micah Lowenstein, Christine Rankin, Nathan Skyers, Andrea Porter, Ben Kerwin, and Lee Elliott. I'm Lee Elliott from Bolton, and I'm an Agile coach. Canada Land has earned my support through the creation of some incredible podcasts, such as Commons and Oppo, as well as doing the dirty work reporting on areas that other organizations are not doing, such as the Thunder Bay series and the MediaWeek Foundation. Interesting perspectives and great
1: hosts like Jen Gerson keep me informed and entertained.
0: Okay, Jaron. We are, you know, it feels like months into to Justin Trudeau and Blackface. Uh, it, it just broke last week. And as much as this has been hashed over and being talked about globally, the implications of it, the analysis of it, I'm still hung up on the genesis of the story itself.
1: Okay, so what's, what's confusing you or
0: what are you thinking about? My, my initial take remains my take, which is how did Canadian media miss this? How did we get scooped on this? The first thing I thought is like, look, this isn't like the early days of vetting a new candidate how many people have had the job of vetting justin trudeau and i'm talking like liberal party researchers like, before we invest in this guy, let's go through his history. I'm talking about the many opponents he's had within the Liberal Party for for the candidacy uh, in Papineau. When he ran against, like, opponents who would very much like to have this oppo on him. Mm-hmm. When he ran against Mark Garneau and others for the Liberal Party leadership, they would have liked to have had this on him. So conservatives, liberals, and the media, if you were given the job, okay, Jaron, vet Justin Trudeau, or anyone for that matter... Where do you start when you're going through somebody's past? I mean, you know what you know I'm going with this. Of course. Yearbooks.
1: Yes. Wouldn't you wouldn't that be the first thing you would want? Maybe, but I think like the thing is Justin Trudeau has always been really famous. And I think that changes the way that people vet Justin Trudeau because he's been in public. He's been in the public eye and maybe that makes people think that they don't need to dig as much because He's already there. There's no real secrets. Justin Trudeau has been Justin Trudeau, who has been known, if not a household name, you know, to certain political circles or certain people in in, in certain circles in Canada. They know who this guy is. He's the son of a former prime minister. Like there's, Not much need on the face of it, I guess, for people to dig because they think they know who this guy is. Because you'd figure if Pierre Elliott Trudeau's son showed up at a costume party
0: in full brown face where nobody else was dressed like that, you would know about that. And, and, And I think there's some people who will think that I'm pointing at like there was some sort of a cover up or this was suppressed. I think that your explanation is the likeliest explanation is that it was hiding in plain sight. Now, I got pushback when I asked the question of the Canadian media, how did we miss this? Because Mm -hmm. people said, oh, Jesse, it's not like Time magazine beat us and scooped us by digging in a way that we didn't. This was obviously handed to Time magazine. And I think that's a reasonable thing for Canadian journalists to think based on the way that Time magazine presented their sourcing. But there is a contradiction. And I know you're aware of this. I'm going to run through this for the benefit of our listeners. The, the time story itself, which was... Uh Three reporters shared the byline, and the way that they explained where the story came from is as follows. They said earlier this month, Time obtained a copy of the yearbook, The View, with the photograph of Trudeau in brownface from Vancouver businessman Michael Adamson, who was part of the West Point Grey Academy community. Adamson was not at the party, which was attended by school faculty, administrators, and parents of students. He said that he first saw the photograph in July and felt it should be made public. This suggests, it doesn't actually say he brought it to time, it just says that we obtained it from him, but the fact that he saw it in July and then this only got to time now, I think a lot of people took that to mean like, okay, this guy obviously, like whether he was a conservative operative or just somebody who wanted to see Trudeau go down, the fact that there was this lag between when he saw it and when time got it, it, it kind of describes uh, this this Adamson as the agent through which the story came to light. Mm-hmm. Now that, that narrative is pretty explicitly contradicted by what one of the reporters, Anna Kumbampati, told NPR radio like the next day. And and I, I don't think she's given an interview since then. Mm-hmm. But in this one interview, this reporter, when asked that same question of like where did this how did you get this photograph? She said
1: I'd heard about it as a source of gossip in uh Vancouver community and you know, contacted a source to see the photo and was sent the yearbook.
0: So not only has Anna Kambampati kind of disappeared since that NPR interview, I I haven't seen her in the Canadian media at all. You can see all these Canadian reporters asking her for interviews on Twitter. I don't think she's given any of them uh, any information. She's also deleted her website and her Instagram since that story came out. Now, by that account, Time reporters heard some gossip and went digging. Mm -hmm. Now, both of those things could be true, They suggest different narratives, but I guess they could both be true if Time Magazine's reporter Anna Kumbampati heard the gossip, went searching for somebody who had the yearbook and then found Adamson. And then Adamson was like, oh, yeah, I saw this yearbook last summer. I think the public should know about it. But it does contradict, I think, the suggested narrative of the Time story, which was that this was like just simply a matter of political warfare.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that. These are not really contradictions. I think if you read between the lines, this is an NPR interview. People write differently than they speak and vice versa. And I think, you know, she says that a source sent it to her. I mean, the source is probably just Adamson. I mean, w- the way I see it is Kemba heard about this gossip, was looking for somebody who could confirm this, and hopefully she got... Um, you know, she asked a couple people and somebody gave her the the yearbook and it was probably Adamson. I don't don't think there is a contradiction here, really.
0: I think there's a contradiction between the two narratives that that these two different accounts suggest. Mm -hmm. I think that there's some very careful wording going on here. And I think it's curious that, A, no one has been able to find Michael Adamson. Mm -hmm. And and B, Kamapati has not spoken to anybody since, nor nor any of the other reporters have spoken to anybody since. Now, I understand it's sensitive when you're dealing with sources. Of course. But this is a, a news story that might affect who is the prime minister of Canada? Sure. And I think that whether or not this was basically strategic politics, mm-hmm. that this came out when it did, or whether this was reporters digging, I mean, is not just a matter of importance to me as as a, a media reporter and critic who's curious about why America beat us to the story, which I think is actually like a very good question and a relevant question. But I think it also absolutely... It, it, I mean, I, I don't understand Time magazine's reluctance, even if they're simply, uh, their story is simply to say... We have sources to protect, so there's a limited amount of information that we can give you about how this came to be. However, the, the question is, did we ask for the photo or was the photo provided to us? That doesn't betray your source.
1: I think why, th- why couldn't they tell us that? I think you're the only person asking, though. If I think about SNC-Lavala. That's a massive story. We don't know very much about the sourcing, and that doesn't change the story. The story still matters. The sourcing is part of the story. I mean, we know that reporters use this kind of language all the time. Time obtained a copy of the yearbook. But didn't Time go a bit further than most news media in the sense that they actually Named their source. I mean, I've, I know I've. Do you find it
0: curious that nobody has been able to,
1: to locate this person? I mean, personally, I'll tell you, I've tried. I've tried to look for this guy. I think I might have gotten close. I think maybe I did find him, but he just didn't return my calls. But I mean, maybe he just doesn't want to talk. Maybe it was like, I'm gonna send this to time and I don't want to deal with the publicity, right? It's a lot of stress when you're just a normal person and you know you have hundreds of media outlets just bombarding you, asking you for more information. And I mean, from this guy's perspective, I think it's like he did his job. Like he put his name beside this, you know, besides this thing and said, I'm the one who gave Time the yearbook. I mean, he must have given the permission to use his name. He did that, which is more than most sources do. Most sources will, you know, just like shroud themselves in anonymity, give you something you know, in an envelope or whatever and uh, you just say, yeah Candleland obtained, time obtained. I think they went a step further. Maybe they actually did a better job than most news media.
0: I think we need to know more about this and I'll tell you why. There are already conspiracy theories festering online. Mm -hmm. There's this elaborate one that people keep sending me like, Jesse, you got to look into this and it's, you know, I think it's ridiculous on the face of it. It's got Mm -hmm. Patty went to a Christian prep school and she obviously as part of some conservative plot and Adamson, you know, the likely Adamson involved is this artist who I think is a different person than you've located it Mm -hmm. to. This is the environment through which these types of things take hold. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that that's dangerous when people start thinking that they're like sinister forces at work for sure it's something that could easily be cleared up if time tells us what they are able to even if it's simply to tell us here's what we can not do you think that would quell anybody's
1: rumblings if they are conspiracy theorists
0: do I think that information is a is a uh, antidote to conspiracy theories yeah yeah I, th- I think that it, in, in, in shrouded mystery is where
1: conspiracy theories bloom to an extent but I also think that it's not necessarily a job of a reporter to try to they should be accountable for their work but when people just start making stuff Up, I mean, as you know very well, I was the subject of some very strange op-eds a couple months ago where people were saying all kinds of things about me. Well, how did we counter that? By telling
0: the truth about your
1: work? Absolutely, right? But at the same time, I mean, there's stuff out there that I can't get rid of that was said about me that I know is an absolute lie. All I can do is just stand by my work. It's a waste of my time and energy to address every single person who wants to act like, you know, I have some nefarious intent or that, you know, I'm comparable to a plagiarist. I I can't really spend too much time on that. It's not worth the effort. I mean, I'd like to talk about the fact that maybe nobody cared. Maybe nobody cared that much, right? And I think we've, like, we, to, you know, to shift a little bit. We Talk s- about that. That's really
0: interesting. Yeah, I mean, Because there were a lot of people at that party.
1: There was an abacus poll that came out recently and uh, said about 42% of people um, who they polled didn't really care about this blackface thing. It didn't really bother them. There were certain shifts when you got to visible minorities, when you got to younger people, where more of them cared. But the overwhelming, you know, consensus from this poll, at least, which I don't know how accurate it is, is that a lot of people just aren't that bothered by it. And another good chunk of them basically said, Didn't love it, but um, I accept his apology. And I'll be clear, anecdotally, there are a lot of people that I've seen, people that I know and people that I'm just seeing that of all ages, all races, including Black people, my age, I'm 24, who don't really care about this thing. And I think that there's a couple things to that. One is just that a lot of people in Canada don't understand the history of blackface. They don't know what blackface is. They think that blackface is, you know, at worst in poor taste or insensitive. They don't know what the word minstrelsy means. They don't know the history of this thing. It's a 200 year old practice of you know, subjugating, dehumanizing, mocking people of color, especially black people. And then, you know, there's forms of doing it to native people, like, you know, playing native and things like that. This has been in Canada and the US for hundreds of years, but I think that's lost upon most people. And so I think that if you don't have that context, if you don't have that history, and to my view, most people don't, it really is just, oh, this guy painted his face. Maybe it wasn't so great, but what's the
0: big deal? So here, is this a Canadian media thing and much was made of the fact that all the reporters covering Trudeau were white yeah. and that uh, newsrooms still remain largely white? Yeah. Or uh, you know, you're know, you extending this beyond that to Canada writ large, yeah. that, that Canada does not have the same sophistication on this issue as perhaps uh, America
1: does. I want to shout out uh, David Akin from Global because he actually tweeted some of the questions that he apparently asked. He, he addressed the fact that, you know, Tana McCharles of the Star posted this photo of the Liberal, I think it was the bus or the plane, and it was all white reporters and people made it- a big deal out of that and that's completely understandable but he said you know i've been asking people of color what i should ask justin trudeau about this and he, one of the things he apparently asked trudeau was can you tell us why blackface is offensive i don't know if there was an answer to that no, i don't think he's but answered that. i wish that there was yeah because i don't think that media coverage has done a great job explaining why this is a problem we can talk about some of the columns that have come out about this and i mean some of them have been so dismissive and so strange. I mean, there's been a lot of good ones, but there's also been things like Heather Malick had this. Can I just pull up this Heather Malick column? Oh, please and, do. By yeah. all means. So Heather Malick writes this column this week about blackface. And apparently she was on vacation or she was gone for a little bit. She comes back to this big issue. And I mean, what she calls it is a crude Trump style campaign uh, distraction picked up and pumped by, up by the media. She thinks this is not a big deal. Mm -hmm. Heather Malik prefaces the fact that she's of mixed race, which I guess, you know, absolves her of, you know, this... She's very dismissive. I mean, she says, Trudeau is an interesting man who comes from a stylish theatrical family (laughs) with roots in B.C. and Quebec. He likes dressing up at Halloween. He just likes dressing up. The French are like that. And it's like... are you serious? Are wow. you... And she she later says that the US slavery has, you know, had a real legacy there. Canada never had that. That's a lie. We did have a slave trade. Sure. It was much smaller, but it did happen. Racism is an issue that doesn't consume us here. She goes on to blame Andrew Shear for this when Andrew Shear did not publish this time did this was not a piece of oppo research at least not through the Conservative Party. Clearly, it's just it's, it's this dismissive thing and I think this is kind of Frankly, as much as I might not love this column, it's probably
0: reflective of what a lot of people think. You know, it's interesting to see who is dismissive, and not just dismissive, but who is kind of like, let's just uh, talk about the political dynamics of yes. this. Yeah. You know, Chantal Ibert, oh, you know, if he wins now, he'll be a diminished figure on the world stage. Mm-hmm. You know, Stephen Murray McLean saying, okay, this is Jagmeet Singh's moment, Andrew Shearer's opportunity. Ibbotson said similar things, yeah. Yeah, they're, they're like, what are the political implications? Meanwhile, you know, to the credit of the media, everybody did go through the Rolodex of like, racial issues, racial issues, and, you know, they got a bunch of, of writers of color to write... With but they th- and, and none of whom, I guess, if, unless we count Heather Malik was dismissive. Yeah, everyone thought this was very
1: important. A lot of them were in American media, which is also interesting, yeah, right? They took, they took that message to American uh, media. I mean, Vicky Mochama was in was in National Post, Her- was, Sir, the Washington Post. Yeah, Washington Post. Sorry, Sarah Haji was in Vogue. But yeah, I mean, these columns were obviously more personal, right? They weren't. They weren't emotional I would say but yeah these are people who can relate to racism and relate to being mocked uh racially where the other ones yeah even though you know people kind of addressed the racial issues it was really just like what are the implications how does this affect the the horse race it's not something that would be top of mind if you're a person of color and you've dealt with this right it was such an example of, of why it matters to have diverse I mean like
0: even when you're getting people who are critical not dismissing it Leah McLaren was very critical mm-hmm. of Trudeau in her in her Guardian piece on this but it was just so riddled with i mean you know she was building this case of how trudeau loves to apologize for things that aren't really his fault you know but when something is his fault it's a different story and she's sort of like he apologized for this he apologizes for that and then she writes and here's a further apology uh, which is kind of connected to a trudeau apology every morning across canada school children recite an apology to the indigenous people on whose stolen land they are lucky to be standing that's not true that's a land acknowledgement, right, when that
1: happens well, in she, some yeah. school boards, I think? Well,
0: she, I think, is referring to the acknowledgement and, and calling it an apology. Mm-hmm. The acknowledgement is, like, very explicitly, if, if language means anything, uh, mm-hmm. you're acknowledging that we're standing on Indigenous land. You're certainly not apologizing for it. Yep. Furthermore, it's not recited by kids. It's like, you know, in some schools, read right over the loudspeakers. Mm-hmm. And finally, that has nothing to do with Trudeau. Yeah. You know, I mean, that was just a complete... It was a series of factual inaccuracies that ran in The Guardian. And I think it just has to do with when people don't have a personal connection to the stuff and it's only sort of as a
1: rhetorical device. I, I also think that, you know, for a number of reasons, when you write in an international publication, there's a lot of things that Canadians can say about Canada that a lot of people would, you know, blink twice at. But if you're writing it for a different audience, they don't know any better, right? We talk about this all the time. The oh, New yeah, York, yeah. The New York Times will have, like, this very strange portrait of, like, what Canada is. And, you know, this is this revered newspaper, but when they're writing about it, it doesn't reflect what we see, right? Because you know, these are people who are parachuting in, right? And they see one instance, they see a snapshot, and it's like, this is what Canada is. And it's very strange to Canadians. And I think when you're any any columnist or any writer who's writing for international publications, you have more power to kind of reflect on uh, what you think about the country more than what the consensus or the popular thought is, because your editor doesn't know any better either. I think there are probably some editors who might think the same as a lot of these Canadians. Like, this is kind of notable, but it's not a big deal. Let's move on. And, you know, I think what we're hearing from a lot of voters, just to talk about voters again for a second, is that this is a harm reduction thing, right? Some people are saying it in a more crude way in the sense that, well, why would I vote for Andrew Shear? You know, there's all those racists in his party. You might as well pick Trudeau. He has a better record, even though he did this when he was a kid. He wasn't a kid. He was 30 years old. You know, people vote defensively. Right. And, and there are voting patterns in Canada that, you know, are kind of similar to the U.S. where, especially for black voters, I can speak to that a little bit. Some black voters are always going to vote liberal because Justin's father brought them here like my parents. My parents are here because of Pierre Trudeau's policies. Mm-hmm. And I'm not I don't know what my, what my parents are going to vote. I actually haven't talked to them about the blackface thing very much, but I do know that that's what people think about. They think about the legacy. They think about well, you know, is it worth it to vote conservative just because of this one thing? They think about overall which policies are going to be better for me and what makes more sense. And I think a lot of people are just gonna assume lots of people of color are just gonna assume, well, there are lots of white people who are doing racist stuff. And if I just try to eliminate all of them, I won't have that many to pick from in public in, in you know in public life. You know, people are gonna say these are small potatoes when you think about, you know, taxes and childcare and, and health and everything else. And I would not blame any person of any race for prioritizing that.
0: So Jaren, between the two ways the columnists went, actually dealing with blackface its history, its implications mm-hmm. or just you know, handicapping what impact it's going to have on the horse race. Which of those conversations do you think is most important?
1: Honestly, it's it's the horse race. I'm not going to pretend like it's it's the emotional thing.
0: Who gives a shit about the horse race? Uh, like, everybody. You're the one who's saying that Canada doesn't even begin to understand the history of this Which issue. is why
1: these columns fall on deaf ears, right? If you actually are a Canadian consumer who chooses to read that, you might say, oh, there are some good points there. But guess what? I need to think about the next four years, I need to think about my family, I need to think about taxes, I need to think about my children and whatever, right? It's it's a pragmatic way of looking at this. And I mean, for me, you know, as a journalist of color, I look at these things and I say, I'm gonna read all these columns from people of color and that might be therapeutic or I might be able to relate to it. But at the end of the day, I am far more interested in what white people think. Because white people make up the majority of the country and white people are, you know, more of a voice for what, you know, the the voters are going to do. People are people of color are going to be upset, but it's kind of like, so what? And not in the sense that I don't care, but in the sense that we just have to acknowledge that a lot of people don't. And so we have to think about them when we think about this election.
0: It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer. And it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit Douglas.ca slash Canadaland to claim this offer. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Jaron, it's time for Duly Noted. I want to know uh, what you have to duly note that needs to be duly noted.
1: Since we were talking about America before, I want to talk about America a little bit more. This is an interesting development in California. So basically, um, there was this bill that was signed into law in California that caps freelance articles at 35 a year. So if you are, and I'll I'll read it out, if you are a freelance writer, editor, photographer, editorial cartoonist, you can publish up to 35, what they call content submissions in the given year in the state of California. The whole purpose of this was basically it was based on this law in California that was supposed to stop, um, you know, employers, mainly big tech companies and p- things like that, from just subcontracting a bunch of you know freelancers or outsourcing a bunch of work. It was supposed to be a progressive pro labor policy that was supposed to help um, you know workers have more secure employment, right? Okay. And so, sort of every policy has some unintended consequences. And and so they tried to carve out special exceptions for, um, you know, people who do work in creative economies who maybe either by choice or by force freelance. And so they came up with this number, 35 content submissions per year. Uh, and that's how many that you can, you know, do, I guess, in the state of California. And anything more is, I guess, against this law. If you're a freelance journalist, you, you, you're capped
0: at 35 submissions a year. What happens at 36?
1: I'm not exactly sure put you on
0: staff or something. Is well, supposed
1: no, to... no. I mean, you can, they can't force you to employ them. But the whole point is that this is supposed to push companies to hire people instead of just having them as freelancers or subcontractors or whatever.
0: But really, it just limits how much work you can do.
1: Yeah. And that's the problem, right? So a lot of um, journalists in California and just other you know, content creators have come out and basically said, well, now I can't make any money because I might do 35 content submissions in a month. Right, depending on the kind of work you do, I mean, there are complete um, exemptions for graphic designers, right? They don't have to face this. So, if you're a photographer, also does graphic design, then it's kind of fuzzy. You got to go back and forth and see what counts as what. But, I mean, what this really shows is that a lot of policies have these adverse effects. And now, a lot of journalists in California who might, you know, spend a lot of their time writing for local publications um, and maybe prefer to freelance. They can't anymore, like they can't in the same way. And that poses a major problem for, um, you know, shrinking newsrooms and more journalists are doing their own thing. It just gets harder and harder for people to make money, even when California's trying to do the opposite. That's really fucking weird. Yeah. Duly noted.
0: Yeah. I just want to duly note further, this, this election is the worst. Like what? what like Elizabeth May has a reusable cup and metal straw photoshopped into her hand. Mm hmm. That's what we're covering. I mean, I mean, yeah, you're going to cover that. Sure. And then she's like, I don't want to call my staffers stupid, but like, you know, <laughs> but they're stupid. And then you got Bob Ray on Twitter. Bob Ray objecting to a CBC poll. Right. It's a poll mm-hmm. where CBC is, uh, is showing that, you know, the, the liberals have taken a hit. And and, a poll of overall voters, you know, conservatives are benefiting after this scandal. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't like this because that is a classic election night mistake. You know, nothing breaks clearly until the last week. It's a horse race for sure. Uh, You know, like, you know, typical complaints that people make about polls. It's not just about the overall electorate. And then he finishes his tweet by saying, of the CBC poll, and who wins will be very consequential for CBC. What? Not... Nice little public broadcaster you got there. Be a shame if something happens to it. <laughs> what the hell is Bob Ray, the former interim leader of the Liberal Party, Liberal yeah. Party Elite. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, you know, he's he's post politics now. Yeah, right. Yeah, sure. What the hell is he doing complaining about a CBC poll and threatening about dire consequences for the CBC based like what what is the implication? Like don't publish polls I don't like CBC uh, cuz if you if 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 the conservatives win that's it for you which he basically confirmed in a, in a subsequent email which also he was he was like you know Andrew Shear said he's going to he's going to kill the CBC newsroom if he wins so he so yes i am saying mm-hmm. that CBC should be pretty damn careful about which side it favors in its coverage which is like fucked up in like two different ways because Andrew Shear's walked that back since so that's still not that's actually not Shear's position on CBC anymore mm-hmm. ray is twisting it but like he's sort of standing by this threat mm-hmm what the fuck is going on in this democracy? <laughs> like, I don't know, like, where, what do you cover in this? Like, none of this is, like, actual issues. It's just, like, this ephemera. Yeah. And it's dumb. Yeah. Like, the, the voter is being treated like a fucking idiot.
1: I mean, I think that people are, have to find their spots in this election and cover weird things. And so the May stuff, I mean, it's kind of funny. She's the Green Party leader that they did this. I mean, it's a gaffe. It's something to laugh oh,
0: at. We would have run it too. I'm just I'm just despairing. Like, yeah,
1: you know. I, I mean, as for the Ray stuff, I think it kind of proves the point I was making earlier. Like, this is all about the end goal for people and what this means in terms of outcomes. This is not about morality. And a lot of people argue that politics should not be about morality. This is about you know i don't know if you're saying this to the cbc or to you know readers or people who care about the cbc but like hey if you want the cbc to stay around watch out for those conservatives they don't like you very much i mean it's not about th- why would we think about some blackface stuff from 20 years ago when the cbc is at stake this is just one example of like people's priorities are in the future the emotional buttons. but i'm not like, even yeah. talking about morality i'm like you know like the the fucking oceans and lakes are coming for our cities mm-hmm. the robots are coming for our jobs there's mm-hmm. real
0: shit to talk about yeah but you know? i
1: mean people like to talk about you know the ephemeral, weird stuff, right? It is what it is. Do we know that? I
0: have one last one.
1: Okay, let's hear it.
0: We're recording on Wednesday. People are hearing this on Thursday. Mm-hmm. It's your last day here at Canada Land.
1: It's my it's my last day here.
0: Yeah. Jaron, you started here in our apprenticeship program. Yeah, and uh, went off to the Star. Came back to us mm-hmm. as a
1: reporter. Yep. A promoted to deputy editor. Yep. And uh, now you're leaving. Um, I'm heading out. I'm going to go try something new. Can't say too much about what it is now, but what I can say is I'm still gonna be a journalist, still gonna be in Toronto, hopefully still gonna be doing things that people care about and are interested in, but uh, every once in a while an opportunity comes that you can't really pass up. That's how I felt when I came back to Canada land in 2018 after being at the Star. So you know, it, it was just really, I saw an opportunity to do something different, unique, and I grabbed at it and, you know, soon enough people will figure out what that is. But um I'm leaving this place extremely happy that I ended up here. I don't know how many people know, but if you'll indulge me for a sec, uh I was a fan of Candleland from really young, five, six years ago. And uh I bug Jesse every once in a while to, to hire me. Eventually he did, took a chance on me. And um, I think that's the reason why I even get this opportunity that you guys will learn about later. So I'm very grateful to have been at this place. Um, you know, taking a lot of really good memories with me. But uh, yeah, um, this is my last day. That's very
0: kind. The nice things you say. I think we we did very well out of this arrangement in that uh, the work you did here. I put a lot on you in asking you to investigate. Uh, you know, an organization that nobody had really investigated before, and one that came at us with five different lawyers from five different firms that made all sorts of threats, accusations. You are a young reporter, and the stress that that put you under was remarkable, put a lot on your shoulders, and you carried it. And the stories that came out, solid. And uh, a lot of people ask me, like, so how's the lawsuit going? We haven't been sued. Mm -hmm. These stories hold up because they're accurate. I can't thank you enough for what you've done here, but that's just one part of it. The second part is, with regards to this new opportunity, I totally get it. People come, people go, to start something new on the ground floor is something that you know you get few chances in life to do so so you know I don't know much about this but, uh, but I wish you luck with it I'm very interested in it but you're still deputy editor here I am and your job is to help me understand what's going on in the Canadian media okay so your secrecy the fact that I don't know what this new media company is
1: yeah you're actually in conflict of interest yeah I mean you we, have to tell me that's, that's a very weak argument Jesse <laughs> I, I, I you know good for you for trying um, you will know the same time everybody actually I've
0: told You've you. You've done some your stuff. job so diligently this whole why screw it up on your last day and deprive you
1: don't work for them, you still work for me. I mean the question should be how did you miss this, right? <laughs> why didn't you get it? You should have got it. Good luck, Jaron. Yeah. Thank you so much, Jesse. I guess you you gotta say duly noted. Yeah, duly noted.
0: Jaron, um, as you know, This election has just exploded. The news of it has gone worldwide. It is a lot to get one's head around. Luckily, Canadians have a bridge to understanding this federal election, and that is The Bridge, Peter Mansbridge's Mm -hmm. daily podcast. Mansbridge is doing this out of the kindness of his own heart, a 20-minute podcast every day. Mm -hmm. However, Canadians might not all be listening to every episode of Peter Mansbridge's The Bridge, but we are checking it out, and we are highlighting... The most exciting, the most relevant, the best parts. So here it is, the bridge to the bridge. Tiffany, take me to the bridge. But I think I'll take him to the bridge. Take him to, to the bridge. Take him to the bridge. Take him to the bridge. All right, if I take him, Joe, yeah. take them to the bridge. Yeah. To the bridge. Yeah. One time. Bam! Wow, some new music there. The bridge finds new music. And there we have it. Uh, okay, letters. Um, ha, you know, has issues. I'm sorry my phone's ringing in the background, but it underlines to you once again that I'm doing this from, <laughs> from my home. This is uh, not one of those podcasts that's backed by a big media organization. It's just little old me in my little old studio in my little old apartment and loving every minute of it. So Jaren, as you know, uh, when the media bailout appointed their special panel, it uh, was a highly politicized panel that included uh, Unifor. Unifor has a seat on this panel and Unifor, of course, has taken a political position. And uh, just to kind of go back in time a little bit, this is what um, Conservative MP Candace Bergen said about that in Parliament.
1: Mr. Speaker, the the Liberals' media funding plan needs
0: to be sent back to the drawing board. By putting overtly anti-conservative Unifor on the panel, the Prime Minister is not only threatening the media's independence, but he's threatening the credibility of the panel. And now even the Canadian Association of Journalists has spoken out about the lack of transparency of the bailout. Will the Prime Minister start respecting journalists and fix this mess that he's created? So that's what the Conservatives have to say about Unifor being on the panel. It seems that. Uh uh, a lot of Globe and Mail reporters share this concern about Unifor's involvement compromising journalistic independence because, like, what was it, like 30 of them?
1: Something like that.
0: They're all signatories. You know, a lot of senior people, and like you know, Robin Doolittle, and all kinds of names that we will know from the Globe and Mail, saying to Unifor, to Jerry Diaz, uh, you do not speak for us when it comes to politics.
1: Yeah. I mean, um, this has been a thing for a while. A lot of journalists um, inside and outside of Unifor non-unionized and unionized alike have been concerned about people like jerry diaz Um, being so blatantly partisan and the fact that he is anti-conservative only sort of builds into this, you know, theory um, by some of the public that you know, journalists are in the bag for the Liberal Party um, and you know, the bailout is just an extension of that and so now there are all these special interests and and external groups that, you know, media companies and journalists are connected to uh, that are partisan, right? They're connected to the Liberals because of this bailout, whether they want to be or not, and they're connected to uniform some of them because of you know Jerry Diaz opining about what's wrong with Andrew Shear, and so it creates uh, an issue where a lot of journalists have to constantly be saying, "I'm independent," "I'm independent," and some of them might prove that in their stories and in their coverage. But at the end of the day, the optics are really, really bad. So I
0: think that you you, you summarize this very well. Journalism has become politicized in in two different ways. One of which is that the union that represents us is actively campaigning against Andrew Shear and saying, "Meet the resistance." Uh, unionized employees are like unionized employees from Unifor are the resistance to Andrew Shear. who is counted amongst the unionized employees of Unifor journalists I guess were the resistance against Andrew Shear. Mm-hmm. journalists having quite logically s- stand up and say hey you don't speak for me shut the fuck up you're compromising my independence when you, when you campaign so openly yeah. but by that the same brush exactly the bailout the fact that you've got the publisher of the Globe and Mail openly lobbying the Trudeau government for money also puts us on one side of a political fight I did not read an open letter from the Globe and Mail reporters decrying that. What do you make of that?
1: I think it's a different story, right? I mean, in the sense that reporters have to be very careful about what they give their opinion about, especially depending on the newsrooms that they work in. I think where reporters are pretty much objectively allowed to voice their opinion is when they're talking about the values of truth and journalism and you know, um, their place in the democracy and the importance of media. There's tons and tons of... A space for journalists to express, um, you know, support for that. But when it comes to any sort of government policy, even if it's one that directly affects the industry, I can understand why people are a bit more meek when it comes to really calling out this bailout. Yes, it does compromise, um, you know, the optics of independence for sure. But I would not blame a lot of journalists who feel like this is wading into politics and this makes you partisan in some way.
0: Well, hold on a second. I, I can understand them, well, I, I suppose not Not uh, for the same reason. If they were to decry a government policy, then that makes them a partisan actor. Sure. But the first thing you said, it's very easy for journalists to assert their independence. Yeah. Well, why wouldn't they assert it against their own publisher? Why wouldn't they say, hey, Philip Crawley, when you sign on with this Newspapers Canada, News Media Canada, when you uh, or over at the Toronto Star the National Post when Godfrey writes editorials or John Hondrick writes editorials uh, slamming the government and p- openly petitioning for cash, why wouldn't reporters say to them, hey, shut up. When mm-hmm. you when you do that, you're compromising my independence. So, I mean, the, the answer is self-evident because that would involve criticizing management for but sure. it didn't stop some people uh, you know I, I, I've seen Andrew Coyne decry uh, very powerful European columnist yep. yeah yeah he, maybe he has that privilege mm-hmm. and uh, Chris Selle and others mm-hmm. but uh, you'll, you'll forgive me for being you know a little bit askance when the Globe and Mail takes this very high and mighty position against Jerry Diaz and I think that at the Globe and Mail it's absolutely okay to take an anti-labor position sure and I think they're very uncomfortable with being unionized to begin with no one's gonna say to you like hey don't go up against the Union that's your union but Will they will they take a
1: stand against Philip Crawley, against the Thompsons, or against, against the publisher? Absolutely not. I think it's just yeah. cowardice. There's all kinds of conflicts. I mean, every newsroom has some things that whether they'll admit it or not are just things that they don't touch. And I think uniformly... Reporting on something that affects your own media company or your own employer is something that is extremely awkward for um, a lot of reporters. And it doesn't mean that reporters don't want to do it. I mean, I've gotten in trouble for this a little bit. (laughs) People um, know the history. But... um, a lot of editors love senior editors. Whether they sanction it or not, they know that their bosses don't want their reporters writing about the media. They don't want them poking holes in what might be wrong or conflicts. It looks bad, right? I think you got to expand on that earlier uh, situation. <laughs> there, what were you talking about? <laughs> um, okay, so I mean, when I was when I was um, a reporter at the Toronto Star, I sent out a couple tweets um, about. This um, I called it the drop and swap, which might be a bit pejorative. I think people might not like it, but it was basically this deal a couple of years ago where Post Media and Torstar um, basically swapped a bunch of papers and then they. Um, destroyed a bunch of papers and just put them out of business. And the whole. Yeah, it's being a,
0: investigated by the competition bureau yeah, ex- where, where they tra- they traded and then they killed off, basically destroyed competition in tons of markets.
1: Exactly. They tried to, you know, well, it seems like they tried to basically get a monopoly on certain areas and they kind of did this weird anti competitive thing. And, you know, I tweeted about that. And uh, I won't go into too many details. I'll respect people um, there. But. Uh, there were certain people who did not like that I tweeted about that. Yeah, And uh, it was the sort of thing um, that for me, especially with my ambitions to be a media reporter, which is why I came to Candleland in the first place, it was the sort of thing that, well, this is a story. This is news. It's certainly interesting. There's certainly um, high public interest in a bunch of local newspapers going down the toilet. And these are big, massive companies that have an impact on lots of Canadians. And of course, this is something I'm going to mention. And... The reaction was more just like, hey, this is our business, and we don't write about our business, right? We don't write about our business. And and, yeah. and I think that for me, that was contradictory to what I thought you know, should be the response, which is that we don't have to be emotional about it. We don't have to write a 2,000-word story about it, but I mean – the same way that Torstar and Postmedia put out, you know, some article written often without a byline about, you know, their quarterly earnings in the best possible light. You know, we're losing lots of money, but we got like 5% revenue somewhere and looks really good for them. It's the same thing. You'll write about your own company when it makes sense or when it's positive. The, the star in the globe are always going to write stories about... We want a bunch of awards, mm-hmm. right? But when it comes to, you know, this government policy that might affect them, people are just very nervous and very meek to write about it. And, and it's this this strange dynamic that I don't really understand, but I, I know enough to know that this is how a lot of people feel for whatever reason.
0: Well, you know what? Aside from me um, raising an eyebrow or, or calling out those global mail reporters like, hell yeah, if you want to find your voice and you want to speak out against the politicization of journalism in Canada because you fear for your credibility – Let's go from there because mm-hmm. that the, that is a big fucking problem right now. like because but people do not trust us anymore to be neutral political actors. I mean, you know, I'm not a big adherent of the objectivity school of journalism, but I definitely think that as soon as you actually become partisan actors, uh, something is lost in the public trust. Jaren, are you seeing it play out in the public, in the conversation, um, people's changing perceptions, like people thinking that we're in the tank? Is that like, like you know, it's one thing to make this like an academic thing of like, oh, this will
1: influence people's perception. Is it, is it? Is it affecting our ability to do our jobs? Yeah, I mean, I think there are some people who already don't like um, mainstream media, Um, who are, you know, talking about Justin's journos in the media party. And a lot of these are, you know, fans of the rebel and Ezra Levant. You know, he's on Twitter calling, you know, National Post reporters uniform men, even though the National Post is not unionized at all. And it gets tons and tons of retweets because guess what? Why would these very average, you know, you know, people with lives, news consumers, know that the National Post is part of Unifor or not. So it doesn't even have to be true. It doesn't have to be real. All it, all that matters is what people think. Well, right? you know, this makes it true
0: enough. And some people will say, like, who cares what Israel Levant thinks? He's going to say whatever whatever the, the facts are. Mm-hmm. But but I, I think that the facts are that when people mount that that, you know, the same people who will always be against mainstream journalists and say, mm-hmm. oh, you're in the tank for this party or that... They now actually have some truth on their side. And like you say, it kind of taints everybody whether you're on the dole or not. It'll mm-hmm. just be assumed that everybody's getting this money.
1: Yeah, and let's not be a historical here. This isn't new because it doesn't mean, like, you don't need uniform and you don't need the bailout for there to be these associations that people just can't shake um, when they work for a certain place. When you work at the Toronto Star, like I did, there were... A couple occasions where somebody who I would assume is more conservative didn't really want to talk to me because I worked for the Toronto Star because it was assumed that we were in the tank for the Liberals. And I know that there are people who are at the National Post um, who worked as reporters who You know, more liberal people didn't want to talk to people because they worked at the National Post. People already have these assumptions. And so you try not to, you know, obsess over what people are saying, but you really try, at least implicitly in your work, to really just be an arbiter of truth and fact, um, to hopefully combat, you know, these perceptions through your work. But the fact is people aren't reading everything. They're not reading all of your work. They might not know who you are. They might not have read any of your work when they attack you on Twitter. They just see, you know, reporter at Toronto Star, reporter at Globe and Mail, reporter at National Post. And that means that you are aligned with something politically, whether you are or not. And that sucks. It's our job to protect the perception mm-hmm. of who we are and what we're doing. Yeah. We've lost that completely. It's gone,
0: I think, unfortunately. That is your Canada Land Shortcuts. You can email me about it at jesse at I read everything you send. Uh, we're on Twitter at canadaland.com. Jaren, Kurt, where can people find you? There's a lot of people out there who are going to want to know uh, what comes next for you, and they're going to want to follow your work. Uh, tell them how they can do that.
1: Yeah, so for now, um, just follow me on Twitter. I think it's the best way to keep track of what I'm doing next. Uh, Journal uh J-O-U-R-N-O-J-A-R-E-N on Twitter. Can't wait to find out what's next for you, Jaren.
0: Our website is canadalandshow.com. OPPO is weekly this election season, and it is invaluable as a resource for you, the citizen of Canada. And a new episode of the new season of Commons, all about the families that can control canada dynasties will be dropping on tuesday check that out on our website this episode is produced by tiffany lamb our managing editor is kevin sexton syndication is by cfuv 101.9 fm in victoria visit them online at cfuv.ca if you like what we do our investigations our podcasts all of the stuff that we make and give away for free we do those things because we get support from people at patreon.com canadaland